good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Deputy Director and Provost here at LSE. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you all to the school for this, evening, this evening's talk by Professor Danny Dawling on the topic of inequality in the 1%, what goes wrong when the rich become too rich. Uh, now is the time, please, if you could just turn your mobile devices or electronic devices to silent. If you want to tweet tonight, the event's hashtag is LSE Inequality. Uh, tonight's talk is sponsored by two departments here at the school, the Department of Geography and Environment and the Department of Sociology. And I think that's very appropriate given Danny's own affiliations. Uh, Danny is currently a visiting professor in the Department of Sociology at Goldsmiths here in London, but his day job for the, just over the last year is as the Halford Mackinder Professor of Geography at Oxford University. Unlike Mackinder, who was one of the founders of LSE and one of the school's first directors from 1903 to 1908, Danny has not, to my knowledge, advised the British government on the virtues of liberal imperialism or the geographical pivot of history, uh, but he does regularly advise British government agencies and the Office of National Statistics on the state of the UK population, notably in regard to health, housing and inequality. Oops. In recent years, uh, Danny has published extremely engaging books on unequal health, the scandal of our times, on Britain's great housing disaster in a book called All That Is Solid, and just last month, uh, his account of inequality in the 1%, on which we're going to hear tonight. In addition to these and several other books and something like 200 academic journal articles, Danny is an increasingly frequent contributor to radio and to TV and to newspapers, including The Guardian and The New Statesman. Uh, he also keeps up what most of us would regard as a punishing schedule of public lectures, all the while, I think, doing his best to take the message across the country and to schools and youth theatres, as well as venues like the RSA and the LSE. Not surprisingly, Danny's been honoured as one of the best communicators of social science in the UK. He's also an academician of the Academy of the Learned Societies in the Social Sciences, an honorary president of the Society of Cartographers, and a patron of Road Peace. Uh, most recently, I was looking at this at the weekend, Danny, Danny has started a project to remap the world, which you can find at www.worldmapper.org. Danny, we're delighted that you're with us here tonight at LSE. There will be question and answers afterwards, but uh, please just give a warm welcome to Professor Danny Dorning. Thank you so much for that, and thank you for coming. Uh, the short answer to what goes wrong when the rich become too rich is an awful lot goes wrong. Um, so I'm going to speed through a lot of things, uh, but to try to give you an idea about just how rich the rich are now, what the trajectories of change are, and what can be done about it. So that I don't forget about what can be done about it, uh, there are some nice people here from the Equality Trust and from My Fair London. There are now multiple uh, groups opposing inequality in London. There's Generation Rent, there's in Generational Trust and so on. But if you're interested in this kind of thing, Google the Equality Trust or Google My Fair London and you can join organisations which are trying to do something about the state of inequalities in this country and particularly in this city now because they've reached historical peaks. 
because things really haven't been this bad for an awful long time. This cartoon was produced as a joke several years ago. Uh, Not many people find it that funny nowadays. I like putting it up and measuring whether it gets any laughs at all. And when I first put this up, I don't know, I think it was five, six years ago, people would laugh. But they don't laugh anymore. And I think that's telling. It's not just an old picture. Uh, People really do feel increasingly, for most people, as if they're losers. You may not feel this way if you're young. The young tend to be aspirational and optimistic. It's great, otherwise you couldn't get through the day. Human beings tend to be pretty optimistic. Uh, But the older you get, the wiser you get, the more you look at your finances and the way things are going, it's harder to feel that you're a winner in this country unless you're in a very, very small group. I'm going to show you a stretch map in a minute. So here's a basic stretch map of the country. This is showing where the population is distributed, and of course London is large, but London isn't as large as the London I'm about to show you. And I'm going to start off right at the very top of the income and wealth spectrum. This data comes from the Sunday Times. The Sunday Times does a wonderful job of amassing information about the wealth of the 1,000 richest people in the UK and Ireland every year. They do a slightly worse job of then writing puff pieces about how wonderful these people are. Um, But it's highly entertaining to read that. Um, But the Sunday Times really tries hard to try to get the data right. It's very hard to get the data right, but they have a go. So what you've got here, the big blue circle, is London. And it's sized by the wealth of the members of the top 1,000 families in this country who live in London. It's about almost 500 families live in London in the top 1,000. But just these 10 families have almost a quarter of the wealth of the super-rich in London. If we were to add another three families to that, uh, they have a third of the wealth of the super-rich in London. So you can be in the Sunday Times rich list. You can be one of the richest families in the country, and you find yourself squeezed between these mega-mega rich families. There is more inequality within the 1% than there is within the other 99%, and there is most inequality as you head towards the top of the 1%. Here's what the UK looks like shaped by the wealth of the 1,000 richest families according to where they live. And you'll see, for instance, interesting things like Ireland is larger than Scotland and so on. It's It's a very, very interesting geography, but of course it's dominated by London. And this matters because it changes what London is. It changes what's seen as normal in London. The concentration and increase of massive amounts of wealth coming into this particular city has altered the housing market. It affects the schools. It affects the politics because if you look at who's donating money to the political parties, uh, large amounts of money are coming from some of these people. And they've been attracted in by growing inequality. As the inequality in Britain grew from the late 70s through to the 80s through to the 90s and including the noughties, Britain and particularly London became a more and more attractive place to come to if you had lots of money because it's a place where your money will be safe. Our tax rates fell. Our property taxes are ridiculously low. And London filling up with the very, very rich is partly a product of widening inequality, and then, of course, it increases inequality itself. 
And even worse, we then begin to think of this as some kind of acid. Can't we use a trickle-down from the very rich as some kind of economic future for ourselves, which is kind of inequality thinking? Can't we create more jobs as butlers and maids and servants to the very rich, and that's a form of employment? And that's seen as a progressive thing in a country which had more servants per head than almost anywhere else in the world a century ago. I'm going to show you some comparisons for Europe now. Uh, these aren't in the book. I was feeling a bit guilty after I did the book because the book's almost entirely based on secondary sources. And I thought I ought to play with some data myself and at least just check that the figures are correct. So I, I used the European uh, Silk Survey of Household Incomes uh, took the largest five countries in Europe and had a look at the distribution of household incomes in those countries and how many euros you need to get into the top 1% by income and you'll see that it costs dramatically more to get into the top 1% in the UK than in other countries uh, but also compare that to the median household the middle household and if you look carefully you'll see that in France and Germany the middle household is better off than the middle household in the UK so when people say that having lots of wealthy people here is somehow advantageous, they have to explain, well, how come the middle household is living off less money than they are in similar countries where the rich have not been allowed to become as rich? This is my favourite map of the country. Sadly, I didn't draw, draw it. It was drawn by some journalists working for The Guardian. It's a couple of years out of date, which means it's... Uh, I think at least 100 billion, maybe 150 billion wrong now, because the London housing market has been shooting up since this was drawn. This is a map of the country by wealth. If you've got good eyesight, you can see some of our cheaper cities, uh, but they're the small circles. 60% of all our wealth is held in the form of housing equity, and London absolutely dominates. And if you're trying to figure what's going on and why things are done politically in certain ways... It's very important to remember that our members of Parliament, since Margaret Thatcher introduced the current expenses system, have been helped to live by being allowed to buy property in London relatively cheaply. Um, David Cameron, I, I begin to feel mean because I heard that the Blairs have bought another 10 flats this week. Uh, might not be true, somebody texted me and told me, but they have at least seven houses um, in London. So amongst our political elite, there's a concentration of ownership of property. All three of the main political party leaders are now in the 1%. Uh, all thanks to their wives earning much more than they're, they're earning, but they're, they're all way up there in the 1%. A quarter of all members of parliament are landlords. Um, we're not represented by people like most of us anymore. And part of the blame is that housing expenses system, which moved MPs away from understanding most people's difficulties. This is the last detailed slide. I, I apologise for it, but I got a bit excited um, that I was actually doing some proper research for once, so I thought I'd, I'd show it you. And it gives you the average incomes of various groups. You're in the bottom 10% in Britain if you're in a household with an income of about £7,000 a year. You're probably single. You may well be a pensioner. Um, that's the bottom 10%. The bottom 90%, including that 10%, have a mean of 32,000. Quite high, because people at the top of that group are doing OK. Um, but if you look at the group just above them, I've called them the 9%. So this is the top 
not including the top 1%. You've got a mean of 116,000. We go up one more. To get into the 1%, you need an annual income before tax of about 160,000 if you're a couple. So 160,000 just gets you into the 1%. The average income is 305,000. But they don't feel rich. And the reason they don't feel rich, well, if you're on 160,000 as a couple in London, you can just about get a mortgage to buy an average London house at half a million. But that's not the reason they don't feel rich. They don't feel rich because the group just above them, the one in 1,000 people, are on a million a year. But they don't feel rich because you go above them and you find that it's 3 million and you go up and up and up. And eventually you get to about three households with an annual income of 100 million, which sounds ridiculous until you go back to the Sunday Times rich list and subtract the wealth last year from this year for some of these households. And you see that their wealth has risen by 100 million, which requires an income of at least 100 million. It's a remarkably skewed distribution where the steps get bigger the higher up you go and the steps are widening. So people within the 1% and within the bottom of the 1% are finding life hard to live in this city. Now, almost all of you, I can particularly tell because of your ages, could help explain to these people that life isn't quite so bad. But they don't mix with you. You're not in their, in their bubble. You're not in their, their kind of circles. You're not trying to get your kids, most of you, into the same schools they're trying to get their kids into, which means you're not trying to buy a house within walking distance of the day school they might be after, and so on and so on. I, I can go into very boring detail about having some sympathy for the rich, but I think it's, it is wrong to think of those in the top 1% as a group who are purely sitting there scheming and counting their money and feeling happy. I have yet to meet somebody in the bottom half of the 1% who tells me that they're doing well. And this is good news, uh, because if there's discontent at the top the options to do things are somewhat higher. ONS surveys of satisfaction find there's actually more satisfaction in the group just below the 1%, who at least have some idea that they're doing well than in the 1%. One of the nicest things of researching inequality, if any of you are thinking of researching inequality, apart from the fact it's an incredibly important issue and becoming more important and underlies so many other things like health variations, housing market variations, educational outcomes, and so on, is that personally it is remarkably hard to complain about your situation if you understand the distribution of incomes and wealth in a country. It's very hard to feel that you're particularly badly off. Here's one example of the bad effects of the rich getting richer. It's uh, the country shaped by the increase in values of property in 2013. The value of property in London rose in aggregate, that set of boroughs in the middle, uh, by more than the North East, Yorkshire and Humberside and the North West put together. I spent a lot of my career trying to measure the North-South divide and arguing during the new Labour years that it wasn't getting narrow, it was getting worse. We no longer have to do that research because it so obviously is getting worse that nobody... Um, claims otherwise now. But you get bubbles. You get a housing bubble. There is a huge amount of talk at the moment about the housing market slowing down in London. Desperate attempts to try to get it to slow down by talking it down. As yet, we have no land registry data released 
to say that the 17% or 20% annual house, house rises have actually slowed down. The longer that carries on, the faster they go up, uh, the more we begin to look a bit like Tokyo before the crash 20-odd years ago there. I lied. One more table of figures. Um, but, but again, just to, to add to the evidence of these things, and that the UK is unusual, if you just uh, take the second line, the penultimate line from the bottom, the ratio of the income of the 1% to the middle, uh, in Germany it's seven times as much, in France it's 10, in Italy it's eight, in Spain it's six, and we're 14. We're an outlier. We have to understand we're an outlier with all this general data. We know it from specific examples. Uh, we know because the European Union collects the data that we have over 2,200 bankers in this country paid over a million euros a year. Over 2,200. The next highest country is Germany, where they have 197 paid that much. Bankers in Switzerland, as I'll show you a bit later, are paid on average half as much as bankers here. Um, and banking does lead uh, this distribution at the top, but then other people try to get salaries like bankers because they'd like to live in homes near to where the bankers lived. But it's not just the bankers. Here's the landlords. Not all landlords are nasty. I'll say that quickly because I get an amazing number of emails from aggrieved landlords who tell me they're only making 6% on our capital and how terrible it is and seem to be under the impression that everybody in Britain is seeing increases in their incomes, which of course they're not. Among landlords, there are a group of landlords who are very good at being landlords. Since the crash in 2008, that group have been charging rent that's much, much higher than they charged before because they could, because people still had to move around and buy houses. With that increased rent, the landlords started buying up more property, more and more property. And as they bought more property, and this is just in four years, they could rent out that property and charge greater rents. Because the house prices went up in places like Oxford and London and so on, people couldn't afford to buy houses, so they had to rent. The aggregate effect, and this is released by Savills, the estate agent, if you like, to the rich, and the Financial Times, which is hardly a radical newspaper, is that the total wealth of landlords in Britain since 2008 rose by £245 billion. The total wealth of owner-occupiers rose by much less than that, despite there being many, many times more owner-occupiers. Only 2% of people are landlords. The average wealth of people with mortgages actually fell over that period. You're seeing the most remarkable, rapid redistribution of wealth in a short amount of time in this country that we have ever measured. I'm being careful with my words. It's possible that during the First World War there was a similar trend in the opposite direction, but we were not as good at measuring it then. And here's that same thing shown as a graph and also including the 10-year increased wealth of landlords. Those of you, you're looking like an audience who's majority under 40, even though you've probably done extremely well at school, even though you've done pretty well at university, or you're going to do very well at university because we're going to give you almost all two ones and firsts. Relax. Um, and even though you're already in London and your networks and you're probably going to get jobs unlike 20% of people of your age, 
And even though you're going to get pretty good jobs, you'll end up in publishing, you'll end up in research, you'll end up in some of the things you want to do. You're going to be renting. You're going to be renting and renting and renting. And then some of you, when you get to 41 or 42 or 43, will get desperate. Those of you who did a bit better, those of you who got promoted faster in that firm that you enter, and then you'll bet everything on taking out an absolutely massive mortgage because you want to avoid a life of having to rent forever because renting is increasing that much in, the, in this country. And that's a problem of the super-rich and wealth inequalities rising. Nobody's suddenly demolished housing. We haven't had a catastrophe. We haven't had an earthquake. The reason for the change in, in the problems of getting ourselves housed is not due to aggregate demand for houses, although we have more people coming in. It's for how we sort it out. The population of Kensington and Chelsea fell between the 2001 and 2011 censuses. There are less people living there. Our housing system is becoming increasingly inefficient. This is an old cartoon, and it shows everybody stepping down in the past. And the problem with everybody stepping down is that if you're already at the bottom, you're going to be drowning. The equivalent today is you're going to be heading off to the food bank. But today is different from when this cartoon was drawn, because back then in the 1920s and 30s, everybody did step down and inequalities rose. For 99% of people, they have stepped down. Inequalities within the 99%, according to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, are now back to where they were in 1990, because child benefits being taken away from people in the top tenth and so on. Um, but that doesn't make people feel better, and I would argue it's partly because this small group at the top have not stepped down with, any, with everybody else. They are moving up and away. And that's a unique political situation in the last 100 years. For the last 100 years, the top 1% have travelled with the rest of the 10%. When we became more equal, they all came down together. And when we became more unequal, from about 1978-79 onwards, the top 1% did best. But the rest of the top 10% so that saw their incomes rise from two and a half times average income when Margaret Thatcher came to power to three times average income when she left. She took the 10% with the 1%. They've always travelled in concert until now. And now there's this rift at around about the, top, the 1% line. Here's your income distribution. If you want to quickly work out where you are and you know what your income is a week, you have to do some adjustment for household size and kids. So those of you who are young without children are not doing quite as badly as you might think. But that is our income distribution. The gap between the two lines are benefit payments and taxation. So the taxation, if you like, pays for the benefit payments. If we didn't have benefits, the bottom 10% would be dead because they would starve. Um, but the 1%... £3,000 a week, £160,000 a year for a couple are heading up and up, while the rest, ever so gradually, are moving together, have been moving together. If the cuts which were promised in the election promises of the party conferences materialise, then we'll see growing inequality again amongst the 99%. Um, we are odd... This isn't normal. It's not part of playing the global race. Here's six countries which I didn't pick. They were picked by two American authors. When I was a child, 
the UK, we were the second most equal country of these six. Uh, it's a share taken by the 1% over time. Uh, the only country which was more equal than us was Sweden when I was a child. Uh, things weren't perfect in Britain, but the 1970s were much, much better than they were painted. And I'd, I'd happily take questions on that if you want to ask about, about that. If you look at our line, you'll see we're now the second most unequal country. In the USA, the top 1% are taking now over 20% of all income, leaving the rest with just 80% to live on. In the UK, if you include a few estimates for tax dodging, the top 1% are taking 15% of all income. The latest figure I can get for the Netherlands is just under 7%. Right. Inequality hasn't risen the same everywhere. Countries can work very well, in fact do work better, where they control their top 1% better. Here's a little infographic trying to show you about the unequal distribution of wealth. Wealth is much, much more unequally distributed than income. And when income inequalities grow, you see that effect multiplied about 10 years later in terms of what happens with wealth inequalities. <coughs> uh, the academics in the audience, and I can spot a few here, sometimes say, why do you concentrate so much on the 1%? Why don't you look at wider measures of inequality? One reason is we've got the Gini coefficients along the bottom here. We've got the 1% here. They correlate remarkably well because the 1% essentially drive the Gini coefficient. When the 1% get a lot more, the people underneath them tend to get quite a lot more to hang on to their coattails, and that drives inequality. You can have a very equal country like Japan. Uh, Japan is one of the dots down here uh, towards me, where the 1% take less and the Gini coefficient is very less, very lower. But where the bottom 1% in Japan do very, very badly, there is no welfare state. Uh, people are homeless at the very bottom of Japan. But Japanese society can operate very well despite the fact it treats the bottom 1% so badly. A society cannot operate very well when it treats the top 1% as if they should be allowed to do whatever they like. Things go wrong there. I'm not advocating treating the bottom 1% badly. What I'm trying to point out is that the standard policy discourse of can't we help the poor doesn't actually help everybody else that much. Whereas controlling what the 1% get, bringing them down, has an effect which ripples right across societies. Here's that same infographic for the United States. It's much more staggering uh, than the one for the UK. The UK is the most unequal country in Europe. We have the highest number of prisoners beheaded in Europe, and there are numerous other statistics. The bottom fifth of our society are the poorest in Western Europe, and so on. But although we, say, have between now 80 to 90,000 people locked up in this country, the US have 2 million. The US always trumpers when it comes to inequality. Their wealth distribution looks like this. Or oh, it did look like this in 2007. The data here is old, because when it came to 2010 and we got new data, which we got a few years after 2010, that bottom 40% had less than nothing. Uh, they were literally in the Atlantic. They couldn't be given any space at all. And when we added on their housing equity, it got even worse. Because the average member of the bottom 40% of US society, those who'd managed to buy a house, on average had negative equity. This was the point at which the US administration 
I'd probably describe it as began to panic or began to do something. And you've seen tax changes in the US to try to begin to redistribute things in a way that you haven't seen here, almost the opposite here. We're very unusual in terms of the numbers of very rich people we have. We're a smaller country than Germany, but have more households with over 100 million pounds. We're an attractive place, along with the US and Singapore. We're an attractive place to the very, very wealthy. What happens when the wealthy get wealthier is shown, I think, very nicely by this graph. I discovered this graph when I was writing the book. Uh, it was produced by an obscure French economist called Piketty. And I, I thought I was ever so clever going through the work of Piketty. And I've, the book's got several Piketty graphs in it. Uh, and there's not much need to show these now. And the nice thing about what Piketty's done is that this kind of thing is no longer controversial. It's accepted. And things are changing that fast. It is interesting. This is an index of deregulation of finance in the United States and the take of the 1%. As the 1% get more, they use some of that money to influence policy to get financial deregulation so they can get even more. When the 1% got less and less, the rest of society was able to do things like control banks so that they were less and less likely to crash because that wouldn't be in our interest. We get very few... Uh, attempts to measure wealth in this country. Other than the Sunday Times having a go, there isn't a decent um, measure of wealth distribution. ONS accidentally released some data um, and asked the people who drew graphs of it to take their graphs down from the web. Uh, luckily, George Monbiot refused. Uh, so here's John, George Monbiot's graph for the wealth distribution. It's probably an underestimate for the top 1%. Um, but, of course, remember there's more inequality in that group than any other. Just a few more graphs to get a sense of why this matters and, and what's going on and why it could be different. I'll zoom on in these graphs in, in a minute, but the one in orange far away from me is the proportion of households in England who have children who are living in private renting and how fast that has risen. Uh, this was never the plan. We didn't plan to head up. We'll now be over 25% of households with children renting privately. It is not good for households with children to rent privately because you have very little stability. You can be evicted with two months' notice, and that's not good for children because children need to grow up in the same neighbourhood and stay in the same schools and keep their friends. These are the kind of things that go rapidly wrong when you have a rapid increase in inequality in a country. This graph here, I'll, I'll show you the zoomed in one in a minute. Alan Milburn's report of last year, the Social uh, Mobility and Child Poverty Commission report, had this graph in it uh, quite a long way through. There's nothing wrong in renting. Um, a decent society has a large amount of property for rent, and the rest for purchase, and you purchase when you want to do it up and want to be really stable, and you rent when you're less sure. But in a decent society, you have rent regulations. You have all kinds of regulations because regulations make markets work better. So if you look at Germany, where a lot of people and families with children are renting, their landlords have to buy them out to get them to move. They actually have to offer them money and then up it until the point where the family are willing uh, to move because the leases are so long. These are the kind of things we need to move back to. We used to have this. Um, 
For some strange reason, in this country, in Economics 101, economic students are taught that rent controls are evil. And I think that's one of the repercussions of living in an unequal society, that we get simple things like that, like that wrong. Rent regulation is not evil. You just have to work out an efficient way to do it. So look at where it's done in the US, look at where it's done in Vienna, and you can see uh, where it works. Or the Netherlands. When people tell you that inequality is rising everywhere and it's inevitable, look again to the Netherlands or look to Switzerland. Switzerland is easier for us to look at um, because it's a country that isn't that different in some ways from, from our country. It's a country which has a large financial sector. But the 1% have never had less in Switzerland and Switzerland functions perfectly well. This is why the bankers are getting half as much in Zurich as they get in London. And it isn't just because they can go skiing. It's, it, it is because Swiss society has worked out that they need to control things so that they don't end up like Singapore, which is a, probably the most unequal of the richest 25 countries in the world. It's not a utopia, these places. None of them are perfect. Um, but we are the dunce of the class. Us, Singapore, and the USA are now almost certainly the three most unequal countries of the richest 25. Right. Portugal used to be in that group. I suspect it's become more equal with what's happened in Portugal. And the next country down of the richest 25 is Israel. And it's fairly obvious why Israel has incredibly stark income inequalities. One group of people living in Israel do not have the human rights of another group of people living in Israel. And we are economically more unequal than Israel. What happens when inequality rises is that you get tax cuts. But they're tax cuts for the rich. These are the tax cuts in the United States over time. But we've seen the same thing happen here. Our top tax rates were higher. And then they went down. We had a tiny blip when it went up to 50%. It's gone down to 45% again. But other taxes have gone up. VAT has gone up. Governments talk about taking the poorest out of having to pay tax. They don't mention that the poorest pay the highest proportion of their income in tax, mainly from indirect taxes. There are other things which are like taxes. The gas bill, the electricity bill. You can't really afford paying the gas bill, particularly through the winter. And they've gone up. So consumption taxes and quasi-taxes have gone up. Income taxes at the top have gone down. I'll let you read this graph yourselves because I've shown too many graphs at you, but this shows just how bad the situation in pensions is in the United States. And if you're my age in the audience and you want to get scared or worried about this, um, look at what's likely to happen to our pensions in future, the way we're heading towards an American-style economy. Uh, for those university academics, the employers have helpfully speeded our thinking on by suggesting uh, what cuts we can take in our, in our pensions in future. Uh, but it's pretty bad in the US. It's, it's much worse. You end up with a society where people fear for what's going to happen to them in old age, which they don't fear in other affluent countries which haven't taken this particular route. Almost at the end of the graphs... This is the Institute of Fiscal Studies estimate of the effects of the cuts up to 2015-17. Who's most affected? Who isn't? The poor is being most affected. 
only the richest 10% doing better, and when you look within that richest 10%, you find it's actually the 1% who are doing better. Because 9 out of the 10 people did claim their child benefit. At least half of the 1% don't claim, didn't claim child benefit in the past. And that sum of money really makes little difference when you're right at the very top. People really don't like inequality. It's a very interesting international distribution, but they, they just don't like it. There are some people, there is a minority, who think it fuels competition, it fuels entrepreneurship. Before, you know, and I'm, I'm sure we get onto that and talk about it. But if you want to look for the country where they register the most patents in the world, that is Japan. If you want to look for the countries where the most scientific papers are written per head, they're Scandinavian countries. We tend to think we're entrepreneurial and we invent things. And it's something we think we do. It's extremely hard to find measures of it. Then when somebody finally does invent something, say somebody invents a new kind of vacuum cleaner, rather than doing what we did in the past, which said, well done, you've invented a new vacuum cleaner, that's nice, we say, oh, that justifies you being one of the richest 20 families in the country then, because you've invented a new vacuum cleaner. It's a very odd way of thinking. We talk about Steve Jobs as if he single-handedly programmed all those devices that he's so famous for being associated with. You know, that isn't what happens. This last graph comes from the book I did at the start of this year about housing, and it's just showing how housing has become incredibly unequal in the last 20 years. We have more empty rooms than we have had per person than ever before. The best of fifth of people, so the best of tenth of people in the country now have five times more rooms in their homes per person than the worst of tenth. We've surpassed the 1911 peak of housing inequality. We're using our housing incredibly inefficiently. You could build hundreds of thousands of flats and homes and apartments, but if we carry on getting more unequal economically in the way we have been doing, you'll still find overcrowding increasing in London. So the solution. There are lots of little solutions. The ultimate one is actually recognising this as a problem, and that is the hardest one. But one of the solutions here, and again this is a Piketty graph, is to keep high rates of top taxation. Places like Switzerland um, and Germany have not seen reductions in their top tax rates in 30 or 40 years. Places like the UK and the US have seen reductions of up to 40% in top tax rates. And in those countries, the take of the 1% has risen by 6% and 10% of all income, respectively. What top marginal taxes do is not raise money. It's not about raising money. What a 70 or 80 or 90% tax at, say, an income of a million, two million, three million does is help that young banker who was on four million, this was last year, who went to his chairman and said, I've just discovered that my equivalent in the other bank is on six. I have to get six million. Four million isn't enough. It helps that young man not feel so aggrieved about it because if he was to increase his income by two million, he wouldn't get to see most of the money. This is the benefits of high rates of marginal taxation. Currently, the 1% are paying 33% of all our income tax. And they're paying 33% because they pay themselves so much. It's not actually beneficial. We would be in a much better situation if they were paid less 
more people were employed and more people were on incomes that enabled them to pay tax and to share it out more equally. And finally, if you want to get very depressed, <laughs> finally there is what's happening worldwide. I, I can and I'll, I'll give you good news stories in the questions and answers. I, I personally think we're very, very near a peak in this country. Um, but we may not be near a peak worldwide. Now, the worldwide situation is complicated. There may be a growing middle class worldwide. Greater equality, if you like, from the 95% worldwide, around about the Chinese average income. But at the very bottom, the worst off people in the world are getting a smaller and smaller share of income. The fact that some of them may have tipped from a dollar a day to two dollars a day, really given food prices, is immaterial. At the very bottom, things are getting worse. And at the very top, we're seeing this zooming away. Um, to the point where Oxfam produced that 85 figure and then Forbes uh, updated it. Forbes figures may be wrong because they only updated the numerator. They knew that the multi-billionaires were going up that fast. Uh, They didn't update the numerator, so Oxfam will come out with new figures soon. But to me, this feels a bit like Britain in 1912, 1913, when we were at our peak of inequality, when there were families that were just so incredibly rich and a mass who rented that were so incredibly poor. And it did come to an end. These things do come to an end. But if you want to get depressed about it, uh, look at the worldwide situation. And that tells us that we have some very, very serious changes in the next two or three generations to come if we're actually going to have a more equal planet. Thank you very much. Thanks, Danny. Uh, We've got about 40 minutes for questions, and then there's going to be a book signing afterwards. Danny has said he's going to take questions in twos, Uh, so we'll try and go upstairs, downstairs. Um, A microphone will come to you. If you could please say your name and keep your questions fairly short, that would be helpful. Start downstairs if there are any questions. Gentleman at the back. You two at the back, and then come over to you next time, sir. Um, given that the UK and the United States are so um, unequal, why do those countries remain attractive to, um, particularly attractive to immigrants from more equitable countries like France? Hmm. Okay. Um, do you want to take the second question? Yeah. Just behind, uh, right at the back there. Thanks. Hi, thanks, Danny. Um, you mentioned about uh, the opportunities that we may have to adjust the situation of inequality that we have. Um, it seems that the main suggestion is an um, institutional change in terms of tax. Do you think there are any opportunities of a more grassroots approach to uh, altering inequality? Great. Thank you. Um, on immigrations, I think there's two points to make. Uh, The first one has to be said that in the more equal countries, um, particularly of Europe, a lot of particularly young people get quite bored with greater equality um, and the idea that you can't shoot above other people that fast, you have to wait your turn and so on. And so the UK is a particular magnet, and particularly London, for disaffected people from Denmark and Sweden and France in particular, who don't like... uh, society being 
as equal as it is there and want their chance, a bit like Dick Wickington, you know, coming to London and, and, and doing well. Um, and there are downsides to equality. Uh, more equal societies tend to be a bit more claustrophobic. Uh, you have to behave in a similar way more. There is greater freedom of expression, say, more unequal societies. But the more important thing to say about immigration is that you almost always get higher rates of immigration in more unequal countries. The US has one of the highest rates of immigration because it has numerous opportunities at the bottom for really poorly paid jobs that need to be filled by somebody. So that sucks people in. Uh, we have quite a few of those, despite our government's attempts to stop people coming. Uh, there are enormous numbers of opportunities to do very badly paid jobs in somewhere like London. Uh, when I was a child in London, there was hardly any security guards. Now we have a plethora of people on all the doors of London. Um, so there tends to be this relationship between high rates of immigration and inequality. And it's mainly driven by people coming in at the bottom uh, and a bit of people coming in at the top. Um, there are exceptions to that. The Scandinavian countries have opened themselves up to immigration, almost gone out of their way to get it, despite the fact it being hard to get in there. <sighs> Raising top taxes is just one of many things uh, that you could do. Uh, grassroots is much more important. Uh, there was a banker in the 30s called Oswald Foulkes, uh, who was a friend of John Maynard Keynes. And Oswald Foulkes said of Keynes, what he and those arguing with him really helped to do was to change the moral fabric of the time, to change what people thought was right and wrong. And I suspect we won't see significant change in Britain until a sense that it is wrong for a few people to have so much and get so much more becomes more widespread. We are beginning to move towards that. If you look at the top of the BBC, the salaries have come down at the top of the BBC. I'm told that the entire talent budget uh, has been halved since 2008. And hopefully at some point in the future we'll stop calling it a talent budget. Um, yeah. because honestly, the number of men you could get who like driving cars around, probably women now, you, know, you don't need Jeremy Clarkson. But that, that, and we're, we're beginning to get towards that. Nobody's paid as much as Bob Diamond, the banker, anymore. Uh, if you compare newspaper stories from 2005 to now, you won't see the kind of celebration of riches that you read in the papers in 2005 anymore. And that requires grassroots change. That requires people saying that they're not impressed by people simply making money. The question is, what else are you doing or what are you doing Instead, I am um, convinced by this argument because I talked to my granddad quite a lot when he was alive. He was born in 1916, um, so he was a child in the 20s and then a young adult in the 30s, and talks about how his entire cohort uh, distrusted big business, big finance, because of what had happened. And it wasn't just a war, the Second World War, which solidified them. They just didn't believe it. And then when they found themselves in power in the 50s and 60s, they were part of the architects of the change that we got in this country. And I think it's very possible this is happening again. Uh, and it'll happen to university students. 50% of all women in Britain go to university now. Once they're going out, getting jobs, realising how hard it is, 
the idea that this group are going to carry on blaming themselves for not having become rich and won't become angrier and talk about this as wrong, I find it hard to believe that we will carry on with a kind of plan A that says you'll be okay just as long as you make enough money. Because we can't all make enough money. Go upstairs. Go to the to, to the front row here. We're getting all men putting their hands up at the moment. I'm sorry, I'm a man. And a bit. Uh, Malcolm McIntosh, um, can you answer the question, what happens next? What are the politics of this? That uh, was a brilliant speech, lots of facts and statistics. Britain isn't America. When's it going to break here? Gentleman at the back. Yeah. Blue shirt, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful speech. Uh, several years ago, Sir Richard Jolly gave a similar speech in the annual Erskine Childers Lecture. He suggested that one of the solutions should be redistributive growth, whereby most of the growth in the economy is uh, distributed amongst the 90% rather than the 1% as it is at the moment. What's your take on that? And is it practical for the economists, the politicians and the media to report what percentage of growth the 90% get. Thank you. Um, When will it break? It could have broken a few weeks ago. If 5.5% of Scots had ticked yes rather than no, uh, I'm sure it would have broken. Um, I mean, that was... Inequality was more important in Scotland than patriotism for that vote. Not important enough to win it, but it became the main argument within Scotland. If the Scots had voted yes, we would have had a run on the pound, we would have almost certainly had a housing market crash, we may have lost the bank. And it's well worth trying to work out if the government really can guarantee £85,000 in every current account. Um, So that's how close it is. That could have done it. Um, If we have a second major crisis in Europe, which is possible, again, these are the events that are most likely to occur. When it happened last time, these things moved very slowly. After 1913, it was clearly a war. Uh, The cost of fighting that war was so high that the rich had to be taxed at an incredible rate to pay for it. These shifts don't tend to happen without other events occurring to help trigger them off. And you can't predict what the event will be, uh, but it's very important, and we should have learned this from 2008, you have to present an alternative and talk about it in the aftermath of one of these events so that next time we have a financial crisis, uh, we are not trying to take the money from the middle of society. There's no more at the bottom anymore from the middle and keeping things as they are. But it's, I think, purely a question of time And it's partly Britain accepting it's no longer the kind of country it tries to think it is, or the people at the top. I think part of our problem is the empire and the slow adjustment from that. And part of the United States problem is they currently are the empire. Um, And and when when you are the most powerful, richest country in the world, you make enough money, you can actually afford quite high rates of inequality. It's costly. Um... 
is it possible to produce the statistics about how much is going to the bottom 90% and so on? Uh, they manage it in the United States. Uh, if you look at those websites of the groups I mentioned at the start, the Equality Trust and My Fair London, you will see estimates there about what has happened over time. The Institute of Physical Studies does a very good job of trying to do this with income. It is harder uh, to do it with wealth, uh, but it's possible to do. And it's what happens in most other OECD countries. I mean, in a way, this is relatively easy for us. You know, if we try to imagine that we are sitting in Oslo rather than London and talking about, well, what should we do to make Norwegian society better? You know, it's not perfect, but you are already sitting in a fairly good situation. You have the lowest child poverty rate in the world. Getting better is uncharted territory. All we have to do is to look at most other countries in almost every direction to us and what they do, or just look back at our past and what we used to do, or look forward at what people's aspirations are. They simply want, I simply want, some stability about the home I live in to know I can live there. I want to be able to work. I want my children to get jobs. And that probably gets me more riled up than anything else. I want basic services. I'd like a holiday a year. But I don't want a yacht or even two cars. You know, it's what do most people want? They want a degree of security. They don't want precarity. And what they're being offered is increasing precarity. So I, I think this is very, very possible, but it requires people to think it's possible. Otherwise, you collapse into just myself and my family. I look after myself and my family. And then you get this incredible situation in Britain where we have millions of relatively affluent elderly people hanging on to family homes. Four bed houses, just one of them. Can't afford to heat this house. But they're hanging on to the house so that they can give them money to their children so their children have a chance in future. And these individual little welfare states end up using up all our housing. You know, it, is, it is inefficient and it is dangerous. It is not a safe safety net to be relying on such a small group of people. Let's come back. Yeah, we'll go to you in the front row. We'll stay upstairs, then come downstairs. Um, thank you for your talk, Professor Dawling. Uh, due to the international mobility of the top 1% worldwide, surely even if the UK does clamp down on increasing inequality, that surely they can just move away to other parts of the world, notably what's happened in France recently. What do you suggest can be done to prevent this? Thank you. A gentleman with a green shirt, I think. Um, your graph showing inequality in Britain from the late 70s um, worsening um, to become the second most equal um, society in the world um, did show that, but all other countries did also increase inequality. How much has this got to do with the neoliberal commercial and international trade policies that we're pursuing? Yeah. Okay. Uh, on the first thing about how to hold on to the 1%, um, there's two things to say. One is it's often not a great disaster if some of them leave. In fact, quite a lot of them are not here that much of the time anyway. Um, you know, officially the Sultan of Brunei has a residence here, but he's not really, really here. However, there is one important thing to think about the 
um, George Osborne's began to think about it in a very small way, in that he's introduced capital gains tax on property, but only from May 2015 onwards. We really do need to quickly alter our property taxes. Um, I would say just add council tax bans rather than call it a mansion tax and make it smoother. So that if the 1% do go, or if many of the 1% do go, um, they find it harder to take all their money with them because their money is held here in the form of property and land. But at the moment, we have the lowest property taxation in the world. The other thing that would happen, though, if the 1% began to leave, is house prices would fall. They'd first of all fall at the top because you couldn't sell a three-bed semi in Mayfair for £25 million by building a death trap in the, in the basement and calling it a swimming pool. Which, which currently, I've been in these houses. I wouldn't live in... You know, I've got kids. Um, if the 1% did begin to leave, some of the top 1% began to, to leave, the top of the London market would begin to crash... The rest would come down. If you're trying to increase living standards in this country, the fastest, most effective way to rise living standards is falling rents and falling house prices. It's the equivalent of several thousand trade unions successfully increasing their workers' income. Um, and that would be highly beneficial to most people. Um, so I wouldn't worry about it. They've also not got many places to go. It's remarkable how concentrated the, the, the 1% are into particular pockets worldwide where they feel um, comfortable. So I suspect we could become a lot more draconian and still hang on um, to at least half of the top tenth of the 1% who, for, for many reasons, really do want to still be in Britain and would be willing to pay a lot more to actually uh, stay in Britain. Uh, the second question about all those countries rising... Um, they don't all rise. Switzerland and the Netherlands are two that show it's not possible, but you're right, most do. And we have had a, a change in trend since the 1970s that has meant that, in general, there has been a rise. But it's very different to the trend before. From, again, around about 1912-13, all countries became more equal, rem remarkably similarly. Um, and it, there was a whole series of events. It was the First World War, uh, but it was also a successful revolution in Russia. Uh, successful from... You, you didn't mention that my, uh, the man my chair's named after, Halford Mackinder. One of the things that's not much known about him is that he was involved in leading the British force to Russia to put the revolution down. <coughs> uh, we tend not to be told about this in our history books because he didn't do a very good job, but he did come back alive. Um, that revolution in Russia really concentrated minds amongst the elite uh, because suddenly revolution was possible. And so a lot of people in the elite worked very hard to make countries more equal. After 1970, there's a fanning out. So small rises in inequalities in some countries, big rises in others. In Japan, they've had the most tiny increase. They think it's terrible. There's been dozens of books written about inequality rising in Japan. And they get very upset if you talk to Japanese people and you say, well done on your incredibly low, low rate of inequality. Because they say, don't you know it's going up? Um, and part of the reason the Japanese are keeping a lid on inequality is because they are angry about it rising. They have a 90% middle class. Well, you could call it a 90% working class. It becomes the same thing at that point. And apparently, this is in Owen Jones's book, and I haven't double-checked it because it's the most remarkable statistic, but it, it's believable. Apparently, there are fewer people in Japan 
paid over a million pounds a year than there are in Barclays Bank. <laughs> uh, and people, you know, people live for the longest in the world in Japan. Lots of things work in Japan. Downstairs, yes, at the back. Take the two at the back. Um, as I came in, I heard you saying something about uh, people, el- retired people, rattling around in four-bedroom houses, um, and you seem to think that it was our housing stock. I would point out, firstly, people with four-bedroom houses are hardly likely to be in the one percent. And secondly, it's not our housing stock. Those are houses that people have bought. If they choose to stay in them, they have every right to do so. They're not council houses. They are self-owned houses. And two to your left. Thank you. Can you explain how um, there's been such an absence of, of, of analysis of how QE, quantitative easing, both in the United States and in Britain, um, asset purchasing, how that's clearly benefited the 1% or the 0.1% uh, at, the, at the cost of, of, of total negligence of, of assistance to anyone outside of that bracket. Okay. Um, the first point about housing. I, I wouldn't force anybody out of their house. Uh, particularly including people who are now currently being forced out of their house by the bedroom tax. I mean, it, they don't own them. They're, they're council tenants. So well, yeah, you, 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 and, you and I have different ideas about property. Um, but I, my point about these people rattling, rattling around in, in the large houses, four bedroom, five, six, is that when surveyed, you find a remarkably high number say they don't want to be living in a house this size anymore. They actually say it. They don't have the opportunities to downsize. Now, partly because we haven't built things for people to downsize into, because we have a housing stock designed for us to happily live, create a family, and then die conveniently at age 71. And longevity is one of the reasons why it's become harder. Um, But a lot of people are holding on to property because they know it's their children or grandchildren's chance and and they're doing it while they find it hard to heat the house that they're in it's just inefficient and the the danger is that if you leave markets just to themselves if you don't regulate and intervene you get gross inefficiencies one problem of housing uh, is that there's a finite amount of land so me getting a property somewhere stops other people doing it you see the extreme case in australia where everybody wanted a half acre plot with a garden you get half-acre plot after half-acre plots, and then you have 20-mile commutes in, into cities. So you need to regulate housing, particularly on a packed island in some way. Otherwise, the inefficiencies you get are enormous. You don't have to do it with fine art. You don't have to do it with wine. It's actually bad for you. You don't even need to do it with gold. It's not useful for very many things. Um, but housing, it's a real problem when people start to hoard housing, and it's actually a problem for many of the people who are hoarding the housing, but they're, they're hoarding it for completely rational reasons, that this is their family's best chance, and it makes sense for them to stay in that house because there isn't anywhere else they can put their assets, uh, unlike, say, in Germany, where people put their assets in investments in industry um, and don't hoard as much because housing is so much better distributed in Germany. 
this housing was built by other people. I mean, the, the bulk of it, you know, very few of us actually built the property that, that we, we live in. We're lucky to have it. We're lucky to have the sewer systems under the streets that we've got. But we collectively uh, created these, and we have to think about them partly collectively. That's planning. The alternative, if you want a nice free market one, get rid of all planning controls. Um, and the, the question then is, what kind of shanty towns are you going to get on High Park? Because people want housing, but they haven't got the money uh, to pay for it. On QE, uh, there have been a series of, of reports. There's a Bank of England report showing that the top 20% benefited almost entirely from QE, and amongst them it was the, the richest and so on, because they helped share prices to rise. So it's well known that QE uh, benefited those at the, most, at the top most. I don't think it was known that that was what was going to happen. Um, the reason you hear so little argument about it is that we don't know what the alternative to QE would have been. If we hadn't done it, what would have happened? It was, it was very scary. It is very interesting. Often it's not interesting to talk to economists. Um, but it is fascinating to talk to economists in the know who were there in 2008-9 or who flew to Washington and who were around that weekend. And when you talk to them, you could actually watch the colour drain from their face as they describe what it felt like. So part of the reason that we don't criticise QE so much is that we were very close to a situation that we'd have no idea how we would have handled it. At the extreme, how would we have persuaded the ships from China not to turn around? And you, you do get this. I, I get this talking to people whose politics is far to the right of mine, but who were genuinely scared by their experiences of, of that weekend and those few months. And, of course, it could happen again. So, with a pink shirt and then blue sweater. And then yeah. we'll come over. Yes. Thank you for your presentation. My name is Matthew Seller. Um, sadly, I'm an economist, so I'm really boring. Um, quick question. What would you respond to people that say that if you look currently within developed economies, those showing the highest GDP growth per year are those with the highest inequality, i.e. the USA and the UK at the moment? Yeah. Uh, is there a problem with the indicator of GDP per capita? I mean, that is the headline indicator ruled out both in the news and by our politicians. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, so I think Hello, thank you very much for the talk. Uh, to what extent do you think that inequality is an essential ingredient for capitalism, please? Thank you. Okay. Um, first of all, on GDP, from 2008 for about four years, we had this incredible drop in GDP per capita. There was a, a graph comparing this Great Recession to all the other recessions and to the Depression of the 30s. And this was a bigger drop for longer than any of those. Um, it's partly because the drop was so great that now we see apparently the highest rate per capita because we'd got so low. And then we go, aren't we great? We've got the fastest up. Um, but the medium household is still worse off. And that brings to the second point. Most of the increase in GDP hasn't been an increase to salaries. It's been an increase to capital and to people's investments, those who've got them not to wages. And that part, which has been seen as an increase in wages, has largely gone to the, to the, the top uh, small factor, the 1%. Right. One way 
one way to kind of understand this or, or think about the United States, the top 1% getting 20% all income is like having 100 kids in a class and one of those children gets £20 a day pocket money and everybody else on average gets 80p a day. That's what the inequality is. And if you gave out money to children like that, you'd say you had a problem. Um, the, the GDP is, a, is a something invented in the 1950s. It's a very crude uh, measure. It, it measures things that can be counted in a particular way, um, but it, it's not that helpful. Um, it, it really isn't. It's just convenient. It's, it's there. It's produced every quarter or faster. Um, and economics correspondents on the BBC love it. And they, they need to be kind of weaned off this and to talk about the situation of the middle household. It would be far better if they led with that and then said, oh, and by the way, even though the middle household say has gone down, GDP has gone up 5%. You know, and then people would learn that GDP was a different thing to most people's lives. Um, inequalities are inherent in all kinds of social systems. So if you look back over thousands of years, you'll find inequalities. You've got to go back a lot earlier than that to find a, a pretty absence of inequality. As soon as you've got a surplus in some way, as soon as you've got agriculture, you begin to get inequality in hierarchy. All societies tend to confront inequalities when they get to a particular point, when they get particularly bad. You can do a nice comparison of various world religions, and almost every world religion began at a time and a place of great inequality. Um, if you just take Christianity, you know, people were not very happy with what the Romans were doing then at the time. Uh, but you can look at the Buddha and what he was saying at the beginning. So inequality isn't just a feature of capitalism, it's a feature of human societies. We tend to get it, it tends to rise, we tend to find ways of controlling it. Historically, that's involved inventing new religions, all of which tend to say, treat each other a bit better and don't be so greedy, in, in one way or another. Um, and hopefully we're going to get there again. I would say that the, interest, the most interesting thing to look at or to worry about is the fact that we're mammals. Uh, and mammals do have a tendency to rank order and to behave, and particularly male mammals, behave in a particular way and worry about status. And there may be something inherent in us which involves grandstanding and, you know, and which we need to collectively control. But the nice thing on this, again, if you just take the long sweep of world history, is the most remarkable revolution in world history has happened in the last 100 years, which you can see in this room, even though you're not putting up your hands to ask questions, uh, which is, yeah, a majority of you are female. Um, and if you're going to see a change in human behaviour, is, that is likely to have an effect uh, that we haven't predicted as women finally get more freedom and more power and ask questions. <laughs> Good cue. Just right in the middle here, please, and then on the left. two more rounds. Yeah. Thank you. Um, James Gilligan um, did 20 years of research in the States that, um, and found that during times when there was no safety net, particularly under Republican administrations and in red Republican states, the um, suicide-homicide rate increased markedly and noticeably, and he tracked it back to a lack of a safety net. What's happening here with the 1% and the, the austerity budgets and the cuts and the benefits. Yeah. It's, at, 
it, it, it's just so horrifying to me that people don't, the legal aids and all that stuff, people don't have the rights that they used to have. Yeah. All of it. Right at the end of, yeah. Um, we could pass the microphone back. Fourth row. We'll take you, sir. Thank you. Um, I studied economics, and in my Economics 101 course, um, I was told that rent control are incredibly bad. Um, I'm not studying sociology. So I was wondering, uh, apart from Piketty, do you see any change in economists' view on inequalities? Okay. Um, James, James Gilligan's a brilliant author to read. A lot of his studies were about violence and about men, and he, st- he studied men in prison uh, in particular. Um, people get angrier and are, and are more violent in more unequal societies, so we lock up more people in our prisons than anywhere else in Europe, and it's not because our judges are nasty. They're actually slightly more lenient so commit the same crime in another European country involving the same degree of violence, you're more likely to be uh, locked up. So, so there, is, there, is, there is this uh, relationship of how people behave. The flip side of, of that, and often it's internal violence, so you see violence within the home, of course, far more than violence outside the home, and then you see violence to yourself. Um, so you become angry with yourself. So we have a suicide rate which is ten times higher than our homicide uh, rate. Um, but it's not that easy because we have had a drop in violence in the last ten years that we really can't, we find very hard to explain. Um, people have tried to, to explain it, but I, I find it hard to explain. And I, in my head, I put it down to this slow revolution happening in what it means to be human partly to do with the rise of the power and and respect for women and the declining need to be masculine or to behave in a certain way as a man. I I don't know enough about this, but I think it's it's interesting. We haven't yet seen a rise in muggings in Britain. Uh, We haven't seen that kind of increase. We haven't seen a rise in overdoses yet. In fact, the only increase in deaths has been amongst the elderly, which was hardly noticed, was 5% rise. Uh, there is a rise in people stealing and shoplifting, uh, but they're now much more likely to be shoplifting food, whereas before you would shoplift uh, things like DVD players, but they're not worth enough. Uh, and what you actually need is the food. It's, it's easier to nick the food from the supermarket than to nick the £30 DVD player and sell it and try and buy some food. So you're seeing that kind of desperation uh, rise. But interestingly... The kind of things we saw in the 80s, which was a crash which wasn't so bad, uh, the mass influx of heroin and so on, uh, the actual absolute rise in mortality amongst young men across the whole country, that we are not seeing yet. And this is different, and we, it's hard to know why. We may be protecting our children from it, desperately trying to protect our children from it more. So the number of people who've got their 20-year-old children living back with them they're being sheltered. The number of people who are paying their kids £10 a day, so half a million are not claiming job seekers' allowance because mum and dad are giving the equivalent of £10 a day and then they can describe themselves as self-employed and have some respect. We're doing a lot more of that uh, than we used to. I did suddenly realise that I'm in the LSE and I shouldn't have said that about economics here. But, <laughs> um, but for... 
given the timing of my career, given I began in the late 80s and so on, as a social scientist, even one half my background was maths. Um, you know, so I've always been numerous, and it has been annoying to watch in the 80s and then the 90s the economists kind of move away from the rest of social science, look down on the other social scientists as innumerate and a bit lower, and, you know, we're the kings of policy. Watch the civil service fill up with economists and hardly anybody else. Um, and now we're getting a bit more learning and a little bit more humility, but it's slow. Um, but the trick with rent controls uh, is to call them rent regulation. You're halfway there as long as you don't use the word rent control. Uh, so you call it regulation, and then you talk about how all markets are a form of regulation. The original idea of a market is a place where you come together and trade in a regulated way to stop some people behaving badly. So markets work well when they're well regulated. Um, economics itself is, is changing, uh, but it's, it was at a, such a pinnacle for so many decades uh, that you don't suddenly switch a discipline around. And its worship of mathematics and the idea that it was supremely able, uh, that's going to take longer to change. So I have, I have some sympathy for this. The same thing happened in my discipline much earlier. I'm a geographer. Uh, what we used to do, the reason why we have geography in this country, and so many universities have it, is because it's a discipline you needed to train colonial officers to go out and run the world. That's, have you ever wondered why you teach people about mountains and rivers and tea and coffee and you know, what's a geography education for? When the empire went, when there was no longer any demand for colonial officers, the subject of geography had to change. And what's we now do climate change, we do inequality, we do all kinds of things. It, you can, an academic subject can change how it behaves and what it does, but it helps to have a crisis like losing an empire or a crisis like <laughs> the Queen asking you, so why did that happen? <laughs> she did. Uh, last two questions. So, so you've been asking, and then right at the back, uh, the gentleman with the blue jacket. Does that work, Ralph? I'm hoping this isn't going to sound too naive. Just you speak up a bit. I'm hoping this isn't going to sound too naive in this illustrious company. You're an advisor to government. Don't they believe you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go on. Sorry, go on. Yeah. You're an advisor to government. Don't they, don't you be, don't they believe you? Yeah. I think that was the question. And the last one. Yeah, perhaps a fitting last question. Um, I'm just reflecting that uh, some of the graphs you've shown us are quite similar to graphs that have come out quite recently about um, inequalities within universities and the fact that so many people working in universities are scraping a minimum wage whilst uh, it's kind of an increasing fashion for vice-chancellors to be paid £500,000 a year. Um, on the other hand... Thanks. Yeah. On the other hand, you're saying we need to challenge the dominant discourses. You're speaking out within a university um, to challenge the dominant discourses. Um, so we've got these two different outlooks of higher education systems that are looking increasingly unequal and yet able to provide dominant discourses. I was just wondering where you stand on that oh, kind of it's juxtaposition. It's a, it's a brilliant last question. Uh, let me do... I mean, occasionally I get asked to do things by by government, um, and then they put it on your thing as advice. Um, I mean, the current government isn't, isn't going to touch me with a barge pole. Although, <laughs> I, I used to live in Sheffield Hallam, and it's amazing how often my local MP would ask me to come along on a Friday because he wanted to talk to me as his constituent rather than talk to one of his constituents with more pressing problems. Um, 
you take the Labour Party, which I think is the interesting one here, what involvement I have had with the Labour Party has often inv- involved me saying, why don't you do this incredibly modest policy, such as the one that they've actually done in Scotland? Uh, the example I, I gave was uh, regulate people who are letting property so they can't charge you all these things which are illegal in Scotland to do. And the rental market still works in Scotland. And I get incredible cold feet from people in the new Labour part of Labour. Oh, we can't do that. We can't touch the market. And that's where a lot of... a lot, Not all, but a lot of Labour still is. So you, you have a lag, a big lag, amongst our three main parties. Um, part of the effect of that lag in understanding or catching up with what's occurred is the rise in the small parties. It's the NHS party, the Green Party, UKIP. Um, because of the parties are not separating themselves or updating. University inequality. Um, it is, of course, affected or caused by the general inequality in society. So, not the VC pay. I mean, they honestly could sort themselves out. And when the crisis hit, uh, a number of VCs froze their pay for one year, uh, but only about eight of them. Uh, and then... Um, the problem... What happens is that universities end up hiring people like me and paying people like me a salary that lets me buy a very small house in Oxford, in an average area of Oxford. But if you know how much of a small house in an average area of Oxford costs, you can work out what my salary is. Right? And professors are in the 4%, the 3% and the 2%. That's the entire professorial salary range. I'm not a clinician, I don't work at a business school, so I'm not in the 2%. Um, you're not to come, come clean. So at the top you have this. Then you have this enormous number of temporary staff, very low-paid staff, and then the rest of the distribution, including people on the minimum wage or even below the minimum wage because they're partly paid in food illegally in some places. Universities desperately need this thing sorted out for them and they need falling house prices so they can pay people like me less because all I need is a house. And once universities can do that, and this is why it has to be sold for society as a whole, they can start employing far more people for the 9,000 point. We could even not charge 9,000 pounds a year, but let's not be that. You know, it's impossible. Germany doesn't do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. No fees in Germany. Um, Universities could employ huge numbers of people in their 20s and 30s to do research, to teach, and very often 18, 19, 20-year-olds want to be taught by people who are not, that, not the age of their father. We could do it inside the existing very large salary budget. The way to do it is to stop the salaries rising at the top. Uh, you could do that a little bit already. The VCs could take small cuts. The effects of a VC taking a cut is that the senior management team then have to take a cut because they've got to be beneath it. Your clinical professors then have to take less and so on. The savings from doing this are massive and you can use that money to employ far more people from amongst the group who are currently not being employed and provide a much better service to your students in, in general. But the way society is at the moment, you could only do a little bit of that. <coughs> If society were to change, you could do an awful lot of it. So again, if I'll just end on this. If you go back to the 1930s, you can see people like Tawney in a university or Beveridge in a university, or Attlee when he was at university. 
writing things about how we were too unequal or how it had to change. These were all members of the 1% in universities that were incredibly unequal at the time. Um, there are still universities which have servants making people's beds, so I'm not trying to get myself into any more hot water uh, than that. But the last time we became more equal, that rise in equality involved people from some of the top universities arguing for it, and it resulted in the saving of so much money that we could expand and build universities all across the country, and millions more people could go to university to get to a point where half of young women and over a third of all young men are able to go to university. We've now begun to see the first reverses of that. We've seen it looks like very difficult, but possibly a 5% reverse in the numbers going to university, heading back to those old times when it's just a small number of people. And the really interesting thing on this, or why it's not going to be possible to do that, is that the one group who want their children to go to university more than any other group are women who've been to university themselves. And half of our young women have been to university, and they do not want their children not to go. So you have this force for progress against the force of conservatism trying to move things back to where they were. Do see things are going to hit at some point. And it's, you've got to look at your child and say, do I want my child to have a good and safe and rewarding life, not a rich life necessarily, but a good life, or do I want my child to be a servant for somebody who's very rich? And that is the future choice that, that we are having to make. And to make that choice, we have to realise that that's the choice in front of us. And as yet, we don't realise that that is what we're choosing. If we choose greater inequality, we're choosing to go back to a time when large numbers of our children will be servants for a few other people. Thank you very much.